Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. Grateful to have you with us today. Again, you can find all the episodes of Mormon Discussion Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other third-party sites. We're also working on updating the premium feed so that you can log in on various third-party sites and access the premium episodes. Appreciate each of you being with us today. If if it crosses your mind to donate to Mormon Discussion Podcast, we could certainly use the added funds. There's so many things we're doing here in southern Utah to try to reach out to people who are struggling within their faith transition that your donations would be much appreciated. Today I want to talk to you about the language of transitions. I've got in front of me six different books that have impacted my own faith transition, and I wanted to read a short, brief passage from each of them and give you a taste of some of the authors that are out there that are talking about faith transitions and some of the things that they are saying. Let me start with Margaret Placentra Johnston. Um, Margaret Placentra Johnston was on the podcast several months back. She wrote a book titled Faith Beyond Belief, Stories of Good People Who Left Their Church Behind. And each of these books is worth having on your shelf. I, I hope that just for your own sanity that maybe you'll you'll consider purchasing at least one of these books. But let me read a little bit from her book. Again, Faith Beyond Belief, Stories of Good People Who Left Their Church Behind, Margaret Placentra Johnston. She says, to arrive at the rational level, a person must have individuated. Her concept of herself as an individual must have become stronger than her identity as part of a certain group. This does not mean she is selfish. It does not mean if the values or beliefs of her group, her faith community, for example, no longer make sense to her. She has the strength to branch out. Confidence in one's own reasoning power takes precedence over loyalty to and dependence upon one's tribe. The individual's view of the truth becomes more important than membership in the faith or even the family. People in this stage have assumed personal responsibility for their beliefs and thus have taken a significant step toward their own spiritual maturity. In some cases, the period of questioning is very brief. The person barely notices it before moving past the rational stage and thus never actually leaves the faith community. In other cases, the rational stage lasts most of a lifetime and leads the person away from religious belief altogether. She continues on. She says, Willingness to apply reason in determining one's beliefs and live with the moral, social, and philosophical consequences is a sign of growth, a mark of individuation, a measure of personal strength and maturity in general. Movement to the rational level tends to lead a person towards certain traits or values. Reason outweighs comfort and safety. Science is trusted more than tradition or scripture. Truth is valued over conformity, claiming salvation for or extending worldly privilege to only one's religious, own religious group begins to sound selfish and limited, 
The walls of social justice are extended to include those outside one's own group. In this sense, a person in the rational stage is more mature, personally and spiritually, than the person who has not critically reflected on the validity of her or his religion. Though some preachers would have you believe otherwise, the critical reflection typical of people in the rational stage is a necessary step in moving towards spiritual maturity. Non-believers in this stage are not the crazed and immoral atheist fundamentalist denounce. For the most part, they have instead found a source of moral guidance within their own conscience that allows for more flexibility than the rules of their faith in determining right from wrong. This is not the moral relativism traditional religionists warn against. Rather, it is the function of the higher authority situated within the individual, the discerning sensibility that acknowledges that in some situations traditional rules do not apply. Being governed by the authority of his own conscience, the rational level person does not need the rules of the church to control his behavior. And I think that's beautiful. And again, if you want to hear more from Margaret, either A, get the book, or certainly you can go back and listen to the episode, as I think you'll find it quite enlightening. The The next book I want to pull from is a new book I just got. I actually haven't read it other than to pick out a few little parts. This is titled Out of Sorts, Making Peace with an Evolving Faith. This is written by Sarah Bessie. Here's what Sarah has to say. But I still believe that everyone gets to play. I get to read theology and study the master thinkers and form my opinions. I get to be challenged and to challenge, even if I'm doing the work far from the ivory tower of the well-educated elite. That I'll be the Western Canadian kid in me coming out. We have a lively whore of the elite. Of course I grapple with these questions. What thinking person doesn't find themselves wondering? Theology belongs just as much to the rest of us. The mother folding laundry, the father coaching basketball, the university student studying to be a nurse, the construction worker, the artist, the refugee, as it does to the great scholars. Just this idea, right, from her that, that we all have a right to question. We all have a right to, to ask the tough questions and to think about things and to, to take answers that may not run with the status quo. She says, one of our final ten gods as a church is the belief that not everyone gets to do theology. Unless you've been to seminary and have a lot of letters after your name, unless you're in full-time vocational ministry, your thoughts or experiences about God aren't considered as valid or trustworthy. There are folks who believe that I, as a woman who hasn't been to seminary, can't possibly play with the big boys when it comes to theology. My opinions don't matter much. My experiences with scripture and church, life and spirit don't count. Let me turn now to Kathy Escobar. From her book, Faith Shift, Kathy says, How do we trust God when we aren't even sure what we believe anymore? Moving from the old country to the new requires different kind of trust. Since we can't go back, we can cling to the possibility that something ahead of us is good. It takes incredible courage to move forward in the new country instead of returning to the old. Certainty, conformity, and affiliation are tough to leave behind. We have good friends in the old country with shared experiences and bonds. Our kids don't know anything else. We know the words to the songs and what comes next in the service. We might not agree with everything anymore, but the old country has a magnetic draw that the new country can't compete against. History. Plus our fears can mount as we wrestle with the moving forward or going back. What will God think of us if we go? What will our friends and family think of us? What will others say? These fears are why sometimes people stop shifting and return instead to the predictability of fusing. If you started to shift but somehow returned, it's okay. 
Each of us needs to follow our own unique path. There is no right or wrong way to do this. If the time comes when your longings resurface and you need to move forward toward unraveling, you'll know. If you have been hanging in limbo during shifting, caught between what was and what could be, and are unsure of what's next, maybe it's time you let yourself move past this holding pattern and begin to unravel. If you're already way past shifting, way over returning, and in the thick of unraveling, you'll appreciate where we're going to go next. And I think Kathy does a beautiful job of speaking to the, the, the idea of faith crisis and faith transitions and what those mean. Let me pick up our very own Thomas Worthland McConkie, a member of the church and one who has gone through this, this faith shifting. He says, for those who seek a more authentic faith, for those who wish to continue to grow and develop, it simply won't do to create ever more elaborate schemes and rationales to explain doubt away. More saints will leave if we do. If we deprive members of this vital nutrient necessary to fuel their current growth spurt, they will languish with spiritual hunger and eventually go somewhere else to get their fill. It doesn't need to be this way. He also says, quote, By these methods we can perceive and understand with much more precision how individuals make sense of and process their experiences. Take, for instance, the topic at hand, faith crisis. Many individuals swimming in these turbulent waters will suddenly start to refer to their crisis as a faith transition. The linguistic shift points to something significant. Crisis implies a state of emergency. Transition, however, points to a deeper calm, even a sense of discovery as one chapter ends and another begins. As is often the case, a subtle language cue can point to a developmental shift. In this case, one is no longer crying for a life preserver but swimming calmly with the current down to shore. He also says this. He says, paradoxically, faith needs doubt in order to grow. Doubt helps to reshape and refine our beliefs, opening us to transcendent faith, the absolute. How do we account for our history as Mormons, especially then flattering aspects? How will we be more fully, how will we more fully welcome those into our church who feel marginalized? How do we untangle human fallibility from true revelation? Some part of all of us may wish for these quandaries to be spirited away. We may long for the return to simple answers, but our faith cannot mature without these growing pains. That's from Thomas Worthland McConkie's book, Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis, A Simple Developmental Map. I've got two books left I want to read from, and then I want to share some points about the language of transition and what we can tell by the words people use and the things they say. This one comes from a book titled The Critical Journey, Stages in the Life of Faith by Janet O. Hagberg and Robert A. Gulich. They're talking about this, the, um, the stage of kind of taking things apart and beginning to realize that this is messy. They say it's a mode of questioning, exploring, falling apart, doubting, dancing around the real issues, sinking in uncertainty and indulging in self-centeredness. We often look hopeless to those around us. It would be great to think that most priests, ministers, and other spiritual leaders could be our guides through these stages, through getting through the wall. The sad truth is that many of these leaders have not been through this stage themselves and have not allowed themselves to question deeply or to become whole. So many of those to whom we often look most naturally for help are inadequate guides for this part of the journey. Those who have been through this stage themselves and may be specially trained in spiritual direction, spiritual formation, or pastoral counseling, counseling are unique people and are to be sought out. Another section from what they said. 
In this stage, the answers are replaced by questions. The journey is intensely personal and difficult to share with others. That makes it hard to develop any sense of belonging. The haunting doubts themselves cause additional alienation from others and lead us to feel at times as though we were the ones in the wrong, the bad persons, or the ones with the weak faith. When our family and our friends seem so sure, we are so very unsure. Our spirituality becomes our whole selves as we proceed, and we become extremely vulnerable. At this, at this stage, we discover painfully that God is not who we had thought God was. God is very different. We had placed God in a box, a box of our own making, perhaps constructed in our own childhood. We had prescribed who God was for ourselves and for others. Now God breaks out of the box. God takes on new, healing, and personal images that expand our view of God's presence. At the same time, these images personalize that presence in a profound way. But we fight against the changes in images. We have a lot at stake to keep God where we are most comfortable. For a time, it is easier to blame the church, to blame God or our parents for the spiritual impasse, than it is to come to terms with the pain of abandonment, to understand and to feel our anger and to forgive our own fathers in order to reclaim the powerfully healing image of God as a caring father. One of the most difficult aspects of this stage in the journey lies in the sense gained from ourselves and others that we really are losing our faith and being disloyal to the group. The church, the organization, the leader, ourselves and our beliefs, epithets like selling out, giving in, weak, wrong, or misguided suddenly come our way. This sensation does not belong exclusively to the more conservative types who, for example, might question one who participates in a much broader ecumenical setting. Again, Janet Hagberg, Robert Gulich, The Critical Journey. Each of these books, in many ways, uh, just hits on the, the path of faith transitions and, and what it means to kind of enter those, to take things apart, to put things back together, to let go of things that you thought were true, only to grab onto new truth. And so I hope that each of you are having a hard time and, and working through the same journey that I am, that you might consider getting some of these books and, and reading through them. The last book I want to read from is a book by Rachel Held Evans, Searching for Sunday. I just got this book a couple weeks ago and I've been reading it, and I'm about halfway through it. But there's a couple of spots that really caught my eye. We'll uh, we'll finish the reading on this note, and uh, and then I want to share a few other thoughts to kind of close out the episode. She says, I've done everything right. I've memorized the Bible verses and observed my quiet time. I've studied the famous apologist and taken the right classes. There was no great personal tragedy to shake my foundations, no injustice or betrayal to justify my falling away. Just a few pesky questions that unraveled my faith like twine and left me standing here unable to sing a song I know by heart, chilled by a shadow no one else can see. My husband of five years, Dan, stands beside me, steady as a pier tethered to a drifting boat. Once we are home, we will crawl into bed together, both of us still dressed in our church clothes, but with our shoes kicked off. And he will listen as I mumble through my litany of grievances, the political jab during the announcements, the talk of hell, the simplistic interpretation of a complicated text, the violent and masculine theology, the seemingly shared assumption that the end times are upon us because we just elected a democratic president with a foreign-sounding name. I glom onto these offenses not because they are particularly grievous or even real, but because they give me reasons to hate going to church besides my own ugly doubt. They give me someone else to blame. Maybe it's time to call it quits, we will say. Maybe let's give it one more week. To me, that's beautiful and, and in some ways really poetic. 
Let me read this section. She says, quote, Those first few questions about hell sent me sliding down the proverbial slippery slope, and before long I found myself questioning everything I'd been taught about salvation, religious pluralism, biblical interpretation, politics, science, gender, and Christian theology. Evangelicalism gave me many gifts, but the ability to distinguish between foundational orthodox beliefs and peripheral ones was not among them. So as I conducted this massive inventory of my faith, tearing every doctrine from the cupboard and turning each one over in my hand, the Nicene Creed was subjected to the same scrutiny as the young earth creationism and Republican politics, for all had been presented to me as essential components of a biblical worldview. You can believe the Bible or you can believe evolution, a favorite professor told the student body in a chapel one morning, but you can't believe both. You have to choose. That reoccurring choice between faith and science, Christianity and feminism, the Bible and historical criticism, doctrine and compassion, kept tripping me up like roots on the forest trail. I wanted to believe, of course, but I wanted to believe with my intellectual integrity and intuition intact. With both my head and my heart fully engaged, the more I was asked to choose, the more fragmented and frayed my faith became. The more it stretched the gossamer of belief that held my worldview together, and that's when the real doubt crept in. Like an invasive species, like kudzu trellising the brain, what if none of this is true? What if it's all one big lie? As with the death of someone dearly loved, I felt the absence of my faith most profoundly in those everyday moments when it used to be present. In church, in prayer, in the expansive blue of an autumn sky, I became a stranger to the busy, avuncular God who arranged parking spaces for my friends and took prayer requests for weather and election outcomes while leaving 30,000 children to die each day from preventable disease. Instead, I lay awake in my dorm room at night, begging an amorphous ghost of a deity to save me from my doubt and to help me in my unbelief. Reading the Bible only made things worse, raising more questions, more problems to be solved. The words of the worship songs in chapel tasted like ash in my mouth. I felt my faith slipping away. While my parents have always welcomed questions and discussion, my friends and professors diagnosed the crisis of faith as a deliberate act of rebellion. After graduation, rumors of my purported apostasy circulated circulated around town, and I found myself on the prayer request of churches I didn't even attend. My best friend wrote me a letter comparing my doubts to a drug habit and explained that she needed to distance herself from me for a while. I still have about a dozen gifted copies of The Case for Christ stored in my attic. No one could believe that Rachel Held, one such a prominent, promising young evangelist, was losing faith. Their prescriptions rolled in. God's ways are higher than our ways. You need to stop asking questions and just trust him. There must be some sin in your life causing you to stumble. If you repent, your doubts will go away. You need to avoid reading anything besides the Bible. Those books of yours are leading you astray. You should come to my church. You should listen to Tim Keller. You need to check your pride, Rachel, and submit yourself to God. It became increasingly clear that my fellow Christians didn't want to listen to me or grieve with me or walk down the frightening road with me. They wanted to fix me. They wanted to wind me up like an old-fashioned toy and send me back to the fold with a painted smile on my face and tiny symbols in my hand. Looking back, I suspect their reactions. I suspect their reactions had less to do with disdain for my doubt and more to do with fear of their own. Let me wrap up with just a few thoughts. Within religion, there is a tension. There's a tension between those who have these faith transitions and the teachings of their religious community. One is the idea that 
that doubt is is the opposite of faith or that doubt when doubt is present that faith cannot be we've had leaders say those kinds of things in the past my my thoughts as i run through this list is that you can tell you can tell who safe people are to talk to you can tell what people have never gone through these experiences because of the language they use because of the way in which they word things you can tell who's safe and who's not safe. You can tell who understands and who doesn't. You can tell who's never been there. And yet, for some reason, some of those people still feel the need to impose on you that you are something negative and they, they have somehow remained in that positive place and therefore they're stronger than you. And, and what I'm suggesting is that you pick up on these cues. This idea that doubt and faith are opposites, that where one is, the other can't be. Versus the conversation of doubt and faith being two sides of the same coin, that where faith is, doubt is also present. That real faith truly is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of which not seen. The idea of transitioning to nuance as well as to intrinsic authority, in other words, placing your authority within yourself, whether that's seen as good or bad. Does your community, does your, does your bishop, does your mom, does your sister, does your home teacher see your shift to placing your authority within yourself as a bad thing? Or do they see it as a good thing? Do they respect your ability to look at the information and to come to your own decision and to follow the Holy Ghost as it impresses you? How about scriptural? Scripture. Whether someone has a literal or figurative view, whether someone even allows for room of a figurative grasp of the garden or other biblical stories. Or is someone dead set on compelling those around them to take literal interpretations. That's another cue of who's safe and who isn't. Some of these people will pose this as a either or, that the Book of Mormon is either historical or it is a fraud, that the church is either exactly what it claims to be or it is one of the greatest frauds on the earth. I personally don't like to get caught up in those kinds of black and white dichotomies. They generally never hold true. Do people around you respect, respect your right to question? Do they respect your right to doubt? Do they respect your right to disagree? Those who say that we must follow the brethren, because to hold some other ground automatically places us in the wrong, because they are automatically in the right. Or do you have people around you who have the ability to say that those men have priesthood and have keys but this gives no more assurance or guarantee that they are right than you or me. Do conversations from them encourage us to return to where we were or encourage us to press forward through where we are? Do people around you honor the cost of these faith transitions? Do they grasp how you didn't ask for this, but now that it's thrust upon you that the cost is great? Do they honor that? Or do they paint you as a wolf in sheep's clothing who cannot be trusted because you no longer agree with the group? Faith transitions, it's, it's this weird psychological thing because psychology, social science, faith, uh, theorist, stage theorist all talk about this movement being progressive, being forward, being necessary for proper and positive development. And yet religions, especially those with strong truth claims, see it as falling off the path, as losing your way and as negative. 
May I simply finish by saying that until a religious faith can come to grips with faith transitions, with loss of certainty, with the ability to grapple with the messiness of a religion, to begin to exercise real faith in truth rather than certainty in beliefs, the ability to recognize that one should eventually, through these journeys, place their authority within themselves, that they should trust the presence of Christ as the Holy Ghost within them, rather than first looking to authorities outside of themselves. Until religion can cope with that, it's going to continue to lose people. Until religion can see as healthy what the rest of the therapists, counselors, and psychologists do, then it's on the wrong side of this fight. May the Lord warm each of your shoulders as you wrestle within your own journey. May God bless you as you seek out the Holy Ghost in your life. May God bless you as you seek to be your own authority in matters of spirituality. May God bless you that the cost may not be too high and that you may hang on to and maintain some some level of faith. May God bless you to know that God's grace and mercy are real. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.